Hey everybody, Sean here. Just wanted to give you a quick note about this week's episode. There's a little bit of background noise in the introduction to the stories this week. It doesn't get into the stories themselves, but it is there in the intro to the show, and I just wanted to make sure that uh, you knew about it ahead of time. A little, little bit of a production snafu, not a huge issue, but wanted to make sure I drew attention to it just so it didn't distract anybody. Anyway, enjoy the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 24 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today we will comb the beaches and roam the streets, but we'll make sure to stay safe as we do so. Let's get this started the way we always do, with an iTunes review. If five stars is just great, this pod needs a new scale by Lindsay. Sean's soothing velvet baritone breathes life into short stories that warrant no less than his caliber of narration. But if that voice, or voices, since his skillful vocal work makes clear character distinctions, wasn't enough homage to the words of Ambrose Bierce, Elizabeth Perkins Gilman, and Edgar Allan Poe, each episode features atmospheric backdrops that push the limits of independent podcasting, the show truly feels premium when accented with the oral punctuation of water splashing, a gunshot firing, heavy breathing, or the outdoor sounds of night. Lest you write off this pod as just another sexy vocalist reading well-loved but often lost literature with sound editing that would make Audible jealous, Sean shows his scholarly chops by accompanying each story with relevant biographical and historical notes. Amazing stories, excellent production value, well-researched material, and undeniable vocal talent make this pod stand out as truly five-star. Well, thank you so much to my good friend Lindsay over at 33% Pulp for such a generous review. 33% Pulp was our podcast partner last week, and if you haven't had a chance to check out that show just yet, start that baby downloading now so you can listen after you're done here. Now it's time now for one of my favorite segments, the aforementioned podcast partner. And just a quick word concerning the podcast partners, I always listen to at least one episode of the shows whose promos I run here, and we're still at the point where it's been few enough weeks that I actually subscribe to most of them. That includes this next show. This is one of the more creative and unique podcasts that I know of from a storytelling perspective, and I'm hoping I can eventually get Tim, the host, to write something for my show, because I really like his style. Let's hear from him. Are there real ghosts in Miss Pac-Man? Are satanic secrets hidden in your Excel spreadsheet? Did Pokemon cause a spike in suicides in Japan? Hello gamers, I'm Tim Gibson, host of the Cabinet Podcast. I look at the strange occurrences behind your favorite video games. A new weird creepy story drops every two weeks on Wednesdays. That's the Cabinet Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. Well, now that you know where to go for your creepy video game stories, let's get into this week's episode. This week, I've got two original pieces for you, and they are both from authors whose work I followed before reading these two particular pieces. 
The first story is called Lost and Found, and it is written by Michael Grant Kellermeyer. Michael Grant Kellermeyer is an English professor, bibliographer, illustrator, editor, critic, and author based in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he lives with his wife Kirsten and two cats. His ghost stories try to emphasize the struggle of the isolated individual, the security of community, and the terror of those scuttling, shadowy things waiting to embrace travelers who have wandered too far off the path. Several of his stories take place in the Midwest, especially in Indiana, where I myself actually lived for eight years, so the stories are accessible for everyone. But if you've ever lived in that area, you'll appreciate that even more. Michael also runs Old Style Tales Press, which is described as craft publishers of annotated and illustrated horror classics. If you're a fan of classic authors such as Poe, Arthur Machen, Algernon Blackwood, Robert Louis Stevenson, Bram Stoker, H.G. Wells, or any other number of classic authors of horror stories, you'd be very well served to check out OldStyleTales.com. There will be a link in the show notes, so make sure that you do that. OldStyleTales.com also has a blog where Michael does things like two-minute analysis, where he breaks down a classic story, best-of collections, macabre masters, where he discusses different writers, and Spooky Spotlights, where he discusses different themes and genres. It's a very cool site and one that I visit very often. The most recent post, as of right now, is a two-minute analysis of Edgar Allan Poe's story, Berenice. And if you follow Old Style Tales on social media, he'll post links when a new post is up, and I highly recommend doing so. Not to mention, he's a really good illustrator with a cool style, and all these posts are accompanied by some of his original illustrations. You can also buy annotated collections of horror stories on this site. Now, I haven't had the pleasure of checking those out yet, but judging by the quality of the work on the website, I am confident that it's good stuff. So moving on to Michael's writing. On the website, there is a section called Original Fiction, and if you follow that link, you'll see a section called A Ghost Story for Halloween and one called The Yellow Book, spelled B-O-O-K-E. And all of this is free of charge to check out. A Ghost Story for Halloween is the section where Michael's work is featured, and The Yellow Book is an annual journal published with works by different authors. So the website is where our first story, Lost and Found, was originally published. And again, I highly recommend that you check out this site if you are at all a fan of scary stories, and or if you like this story that you're about to hear in just a few short moments. But before we get to that, our second story today is a vignette from our good friend Moxie Labouche, host of Your Brain on Facts. And you've heard me talk about Moxie and her show before, and you've even heard her narrate the yellow wallpaper here on the show in episode 8, if you've been with us for that long or if you've checked out the back catalog. And this story that she's written for today's show is excellent, and it's the first time it's been presented in any form, anywhere. And I've said it before, but you should really listen to Moxie's podcast. Your Brain on Facts is a half-hour show of things you didn't know, things you thought you knew, and things you never knew you never knew. I'm a subscriber, and I highly recommend it. You can visit the website for Moxie's show at yourbrainonfacts.com, and you can see what subjects she's covered in her episodes there. Now, we're going to roll from Lost and Found right into the streets at night, and I want to give you one note about that second story, this vignette. Uh, it is not at all explicit, but it does involve a certain profession, the oldest profession in the world, if you will. And as such, it references, though again, not in an explicit manner in any way, the activities involved with that profession. So, if you have younger ears around and don't necessarily want to have certain kinds of conversations or make certain kinds of explanations, please use your discretion. Now, you've heard about the authors, you've heard about the stories, 
So let's move on to today's presentation. Lost and Found by M. Grant Kellermeyer Holding it in his hand, he watched the light pool in the glass and run down the silver in brief sparkling flecks. Someone from above called his name and he instinctively hid it in his pocket, leaving the place where he had found it. He looked up into the fire tower. Some movement caught his eye, a white shape bobbing side to side, then falling down. His aunt was waving her hand from the lookout post one hundred feet in the air. Beside her were five indistinct shapes, gray patches sitting neatly atop dark oblongs. His sister and their four female cousins watching from the shadows. He moved away to avoid the sun that glared in his face and casually returned his aunt's gesture. His hand returned to his pocket. It was still there. The object in his pocket, the pocket, and the 26-year-old man who wore it all currently existed on a puzzle piece of flat earth made up mostly of patchwork farmland bearded by black groves of poplar and walnut, and the puzzle piece was called Wells County. Wells County is in northeast Indiana, near the border to Ohio, south of Fort Wayne and southwest of Toledo. Its only notable town is Bluffton, the seat, but on its western side it fosters a small but respectable state park, which is also of note. Its name, Wabash, O-U-B-A-C-H-E, is the French rendering of the Indian word for the Wabash River, which transfixes it on its way to the Mississippi. And although the spelling proves a stumbling block to some, it is quite simply pronounced Wabash. In spite of this very simple program, the locals, even more so perhaps than visitors, delight in the somewhat dignified, if erroneous, pronunciation Wabachi. It is far more likely that they have tried to exotify an otherwise mundane title with a touch of Indian gravity, and the custom continues on to the deep annoyance of the underpaid and underwhelmed rangers. Amidst the sprawling, endless farmland, dotted with copses and ribbed with sun-whitened highways, Wabash State Park nests several man-made lakes, a collection of brooks, streams, creeks, and ponds, and a beautiful, though not necessarily impressive, stretch of Hoosier woodland, networked by modest hiking trails and pocked with electrified campsites where lonely packs of campers nestle during the summer months while the raccoons grow obese and arthritic and the beavers slip into the water, along with the bullfrogs, box turtles, and green snakes. It has unassuming stocks of small fish and maintains a highly populated swim park, but the two boasts that it is comfortable making lie in the bison park, a modern marvel during the 1970s when the all-but-extinct buffalo were first introduced and its fire tower, the delight of some children and adults, and the terror of others. It was from the peak of this great feat that the visitor's family was now scanning the landscape, the lake gleaming brassily, like a strange tarnished mirror, and the bushy green woodlands fading to blue and gray near the horizon. The tower consisted of a tapered scaffolding of red-brown steel that ended in a wood platform, roofed with the same dusky material. Achieving the height was done by carefully marching up a flight of gray wooden stairs that cocked in an ascending series of right angles and shuddered with every footfall, sending the severest vibration to the top flights, the worst of which were created by enthusiastic interlopers on those of the bottom. Like its counterpart in Babel, it was easier to digest from the ground and brought escalating punishments to those who insisted on continuing the ascent. But the view gained from the top 
rewarded its worshippers enough to steal them for the even more harrowing return to Earth. It was vast and wide, and while it was simple, unadorned Indiana woodland, it provided something, itself simple and unadorned, to the restless nerves of the soul. The visitor knew this because he lived in the county to the east and had journeyed up the tower once or twice before. He was, however, not an ambitious man and not an adventurous spirit. He preferred the earth, where things maintained their appropriate perspective. The sky was above, the trees ahead, and only the dead soil was below. In the most literal and appropriate terms, he was a grounded person. Shrugging off his family's entreaties to join them, he pretended to no longer notice and sauntered beneath the black arms of a slumbering beech tree. Here, while their laughter and shouts could still be heard rumbling off the lake's surface, he reached into his pocket and removed it jealously. This is what it was. A wristwatch, androgynous and slender, with a silver-plated band, a clean, postmodern face. The only hours represented were the quarters, twelve being a black diamond, three, six, and nine being black dots, with two rectangular arms and three odometers measuring the month, day, and weekday, 9-8-F-R, it said. This was the one drawback of the piece, for it was 6-29 Sunday. Furthermore, he knew that September 8th was a Monday that year, and yet the arms were correctly positioned to 343-344. He held it to his ear. The gears shuttled dutifully forward, propelling the arms through time. He turned the watch over and looked once more at the inscription, traced in a floral, Florentine italic, which announced, Wherever you are will be my home. It was quaint and sentimental, unlike the visitor, who preferred the ground and the shade of old trees, never being one to play loosely with gravity. He admired gravity, and preferred not to treat it presumptuously. But the italic legend caught his eye, and wormed its way into his dormant imagination. Who were you, I wonder? He wondered, too, why he had so instinctively, without doubt, hesitation, or consideration, cast the wearer in the past tense. But of course, it was because they were no longer the wearer. Past tense. The joints between the silver links were black with dirt and tarnish. The band itself was nearly brown with age, and the glass face had been opaque and yellow before he had cleared it away with his thumb. It had hardly caught his notice except for the gleam of the back plate in the sun. He turned back to the lake, and his eyes fell on the tree where he had noticed it, a less-than-middle-aged maple, with the stump of a branch jutting through its gray trunk, like an accusative forefinger. The amputation appeared to be due to lightning, which had left an angry black scar racing down the trunk and burying itself in the earth. It was on this peg, a white shock of dead tissue some five feet off the ground, that he saw the watch while his family mounted the steps to the fire tower. There was nothing at all attractive about it in that moment. It hardly resembled its true nature at all, more of a twist of dead grass than a discarded watch, and there was nothing about it to lure the eye of a man preoccupied with fellow hikers or the earthy smell of the lakeside path or the hum of the creation that teemed around him, bristling with life and death and evolutionary ambition. But the visitor was preoccupied with none of these things and the soft, milky glint of the watch-glass beckoned him through the limp shocks of grass that crowded protectively around the tree. His hand is stretching forward, and it passes along the bark, dry and deceased, where the electricity had scored the living vegetable flesh. It travels forward. Now his fingers have found it, 
They are crossing through the circle of the wristband, and they are clutching. They pull it to his face. What's this, huh? A watch. Something someone left? He is wondering who. He is thinking a swimmer, someone stripping to dive into the lake, and they have forgotten the watch behind. They might have looked for it, but they haven't been able to retrieve it, and now he is holding it, stretching it, chipping away the caked-on dust with a thumbnail. And now it is in his pocket. And now he is walking away. Funny, he thinks, that he should suppose it belonged to a swimmer. The lake is off-limits to swimmers, besides which it is revolting. Lathered in black scum and green slime, a habitation suitable for fat frogs and weaving snakes and ghostly catfish, not for anything human. Nothing human. He is closing his hand around it inside his pocket. He is hearing his name. But what a voice. When his aunt caught sight of him, he was stooped over the lake with his hands in his pockets. Something stirred in the black water, very much like a large fish. She remarked to one of the girls that it was a pity that their father hadn't been able to come. He enjoyed fishing far more than any of them, and if the fish were really quite so large, quite so friendly, and quite so stupid, then he would have had a rare day plucking them out of the water. But she hardly thought he would have carted them off and dressed them for their dinners. There was something vaguely unclean about the things she had witnessed breaching from the scum. Unwholesome. Hardly something she would care to eat, let alone take home with her. Ugh, to take home such a thing. But it was no matter. The fish was safely in the lake, and her nephew was standing up and gazing out into its silver heart, where the scum receded, and the bald water ran deep and black. They ran down to join him. He wouldn't heed their calls, and finally she laid a hand on his shoulder. It seemed cold, but he turned. The cousins flowed down the hillock like a parade of Russian nesting dolls. The Amazonian prima donna, a girl old enough to claim a monopoly on the comparative science of cosmetics, pop music, and boys, but too young to be allowed out of the house in her makeup without a maternal inspection and an inevitable scrub-down, led the other three, who dutifully trailed after their elegant idol in order of age and thus height. The aunt and her sister looked back to ensure that they made it down the slope without incident. The Amazon had demanded to wear wedges, rocketing her already precocious height, and there had already been three accidents. They streamed down, the younger girls desperately fighting to keep pace with the Amazon, and eventually circled around a picnic table where they broke ranks and swirled over the sandy earth and under the gray trunks of the elms like pieces of paper eddying in a brisk wind. Jabbering and yelping, they flocked around a brace of iPhones, absorbing themselves into the little tools and relishing their collection of portraits and landscapes. All the while, he quietly ignored them and wondered what the humidity was. All around him, the chatter of life blurred into an abstract work of tones and vague harmonies. The frogs purring in the grass, the cicadas buzzing in the leaves, the morning dove moaning an elegy in the old sycamore while a bobwhite, a whippoorwill, and a titmouse all prattled cheerily in a robust maple opposite. Crickets crackled under the picnic table. Squirrels barked as they jousted up and down the sycamore's wrinkled side and two small foxes slunk quietly in the yellow weeds that bordered the woodland, watchfully reconnoitering on the chipmunks and the hares that would spring frantically from one meadow to the other from time to time. Amidst all these symphonics, a winding blur of dissonance and harmony that wove from pitch to pitch, was the sound of human beings, hardly distinguishable from the titmouse and the frog and the cicada. Neither exalted nor diminished, the voices rose and fell around a larger tapestry of life, 
Outside of its sphere, the visitor became absorbed in his own iPhone, researching the origins of his new watch. It was a strangely anonymous piece of machinery, having no observable trail on the internet. Only the inscription, with its saccharine, unoriginal sentiment, seemed to connect the bauble to real life. Frustrated by his inability to scrounge up more information on his new possession, the visitor quietly returned the phone to his pocket, opposite of that which housed the watch, and sauntered off while his family clucked warmly to one another. The lake drew him to its side once more, and he stared quizzically into its murk. Nothing. It yielded nothing. Well, of course it didn't. It's not as though a lake were a computer or a microfilm viewer, and yet he felt deeply compelled to search it, as if it was unquestionably connected to his little discovery. He somehow felt that with it he had acquired an inheritance, an inheritance the details to which would prove tremendously important to him in the future. He felt urged to unearth its origins, as though by taking it he had signed a very serious contract without being fully aware of its contents. It was a strange thought, and he laughed at himself, but it was a sense that was proving difficult to dislodge. The sun continued to beat down on the human beings by the lake, even as it settled down the sky, deepening from searing white to boiling gold. But the day was undoubtedly waning, and none of the human beings had planned to sleep in the forest, so they started to gather their trash and pocket their trinkets. After some lazy milling around the rubbish bins, they formed a column, the Amazon leading the company of cousins, her nine-year-old lieutenant struggling to seem dignified and pert as she attempted to match pace, and the other two hopelessly tumbling after them, and filed down the gravel path to the parking lot. The aunt, walking ahead of the visitor and his female relatives, was talking to her husband on the phone, while she dodged the horn-like roots and glinting webs that encroached ambitiously into their tidy path. We'll be home soon, just heading out to the parking lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, he had fun, too. Yeah, we'll have to tell Janice about it. I think she and Kurt... Uh, no, no, I think so. Oh, I don't know why you would think that. Of course. Yeah, it could. Well, yeah, sure. No, not really. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was. Sure, sure. She nimbly stepped over a branch that had plunged into the little path, holding the phone aloft, and brushed away a fresh strand of spider thread before returning to the conversation. Well, all in all, it was a lovely day. We all had a great time. I think we should come here without the kids. It's such a chilling little place. What? I did? I did not. I did. <laughs> well, you know I meant to say cheerful. <laughs> what a thing to say. At the end of the throng was her nephew. Men over 25 rarely enjoy being carted with their cousins on playdates, and he was eager to get back to his home, far from their voices and empty thoughts where he could make some coffee, turn on the air conditioning, lock the doors, and read a book. All by himself. They piled into the van. With the sun in her face, his aunt looked from under an upheld palm and counted dutifully. Okay, let's make sure we have everyone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Why? One, two, three, four, five, six. Everyone, she shouted, stand still. Her face grew gray and her eyes swam as if drunk or suddenly having realized a horrible reality. Something passed from her face and it regained its resolve and its color. Let's make sure we have everyone in here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, okay, good deal, people. Six it is. Everyone's in, so let's head out. 
The ant climbed into the driver's seat, but she was no longer smiling. She had unquestionably counted seven, twice. The sun had been playing with her eyes, but it was an odd thing to know that you are right when you are obviously wrong. That it was only a small thing, and it was unlikely to affect anyone other than her, she told herself. He was happy to be the first dropped off. Something on someone's shoe was dreadfully rancid. A wad of soft dog crap, or perhaps the putrefied stew of a mushy chipmunk's corpse. And he was pleased to distance himself from his demonstrative, effervescent family members. His mother's suggestion that he emerge from his well-guarded solitude and enjoy a family outing in the sun and fresh air had been unnervingly misguided. The entire experience had soured him on the entire concept of family events for probably a good month or two, until more of his cousins entered their twenties and developed a sense of propriety and personal space, he doubted Thanksgiving or Christmas gatherings would be anything but ghastly misadventures. He walked onto his porch like a withered knight, crossing his moat after a disappointing crusade, and pulled out the small collection of brass keys which would return him to the peace of solitude. The sky was still a wide swath of gleaming pink intersected by thin bands of electric yellow, but the Far East was dark, like spilled black wine spreading slowly across a colorful cloth. He flipped through the keys. Car, work, file cabinet, parents' home, house. He ran the blade home to the hilt and twisted it like a dagger in the intestines of a meddlesome enemy. The door gave and he stepped inside. The twilight atmosphere was compounded in this dark and breathless house and he reached for a switch. His fingers struggled to find the familiar plastic board, and the nocturnal air pressed impatiently against his neck and shoulders. He thought he heard someone in the street call out to him. He turned to look, but the street was under the purple murk of a century-old beach, and the streetlight was apparently either out or slow in turning on. He put his keys in his pocket and felt his new watch as he did, still with him. There was the question again, soft and coy, almost coquettish. Was it... Can I come over, or do you mind if I come too? Or was it, aren't you going to invite me in? He wasn't sure, either about the words or about how he could have so many impressions of one muffled call. He stared back out into the street where the beach's shadow fell in jagged, dark wedges. Scanning the empty pavement, he smiled dully at his mistake. <laughs> Entrez-vous, he scoffed, offering a welcoming hand into the threshold as he glibly bowed. He closed the door behind him with a scratchy laugh and found the switch. The bulbs ignited, jetting tremendous white light over the floors and walls, and he rapidly sloughed out of his clothes on his way to the bathroom. Before he pulled himself from his trouser legs, he extracted the watch. He held it to the light. Wherever you are will be my home, he read aloud. It gleamed energetically in the electricity like a buzzsaw eagerly awaiting the touch which will awaken its innate purpose to chew and cleave. By the time he had turned the bathwater on, converted it to a shower, and crumpled the pile of dusty garments into a welcoming hamper, the sky was inky blue, with just a blaze of alarm red skirting the horizon, punctuated at gaps by the black cones of pine trees, which stood out like vicious teeth in a red mouth. He stepped into the shower as the steam rose to the ceiling and smothered the mirror with white murk. The visitor's aunt and sister were in the former's living room, while the younger girls giggled sporadically in the basement, their shrieks slipping through the joists and floorboards like the smell of pies cooling on a kitchen counter, colonizing one room after another with fluid ease. His sister handed the aunt a ceramic mug in the shape of a grinning pumpkin. 
The contents were warm, whatever they were, since cinnamon-scented steam puffed from its crown like smoke from a cottage whose locked door and bright windows warred off the fears of a winter-ravaged night. The sister returned with her own mug, and they turned the TV on to watch a movie from a previous decade while the girls downstairs roared and laughed. The sister was thinking about her husband, who was coming home the next day from a short business trip to the coast. The aunt was thinking about her family around her. Neither of them thought about the visitor, who had been invited to watch the movie with them. His refusal, the aunt had thought at the time, was unmistakably resentful, and his attitude while exiting the van was like that of a delinquent, freed from a lengthy conversation with a scolding teacher. After mulling it over for some time, she came to a conclusion. She would not invite the visitor to family events in the future. He didn't enjoy them. In fact, he made them worse by his very presence. If he wanted to come to any of them, he would be more than welcome. He could always drive separately. But he wouldn't, she reasoned. And she was right, of course, but as she siphoned the mug's contents and curled into the couch's crook, she wasn't thinking of the nephew. No one in the house was. The black-and-white flicker from the television fluttered on the glass in the windows and picture frames like an insistent blizzard. The porch light glazed the siding in protective orange. The door was locked. The house sat safely on its corner and thought of nothing beyond its secure walls. When the visitor returned from the shower, he changed into shorts and socks, reclining on his red-striped love seat with his feet perched on one armrest and his head cushioned against the other. He closed his eyes and absorbed the lowly silence. He had turned off every light in the house except for the tall lamp in the room he currently occupied. It had four lights at intervals along its trunk, and was muffled in opaque white paper, giving off a dull gray glow that could possibly be used for reading, but only with eyes pinched and book close. The lamp was positioned to the right of the doorway, which led from the sitting room into the kitchen and thence to the rest of the house. Sitting as he was on the love seat, his back was to the doorway and to the light, and his face was to the opposite wall, some six inches from his feet. To his left was a coffee table, and on the coffee table were strewn a variety of utensils, books, papers, and gadgets. He reached to his cluttered surface to receive a book, into the wild, when something half-smothered and half-breathing caught his ear. What was it? A raspy, muffled chatter. He looked at the floor, aglow with scummy light. He set the book down. Something stiffened in his back, and he felt his wrists clench for reasons he couldn't explain. But what was this? The watch. He pulled back a leaf of newspaper, and there it was. He smiled and plucked it up and let it dangle on his finger. Then he frowned. He had left it on the kitchen counter, hadn't he? This paper was a week old, and he hadn't moved it since last Sunday, had he? But he had misplaced sillier things in his lifetime, and he twisted his mouth as if to say, Oh well, and laid the jewelry on his thigh where it caught the gloomy light, watching him. He wondered what it was about the piece that pleased him so thoroughly. It wasn't anything he would ever wear. While it was androgynous, it certainly leaned towards a feminine taste. He didn't even wear watches or even own one but it was as though a piece of his soul or spirit or brain was reflected in it, some common impulse or shared trait. The impression he found most tangible was the idea that it was like meeting a kindred spirit and inviting them over to watch movies together in silence. He laughed at the strange idea and turned back to his book about another man in his twenties who valued independence and solitude. He hoped the story would end well for them both. He edged himself deeper into the love seat edging himself into the crevice of the cushions, like a man stealing into a cave to escape a rain burst. What a comfortable spot he had. 
He crossed his ankles on the armrest opposite the blank wall and crooked his elbows beneath his ribs, pulling the book into his face as if he could disappear into it and leave the world of pain and reality. The windows were fastened, the door locked, the house dark, and the air conditioning purring thoughtlessly while it manufactured the 64-degree atmosphere. It was an escape, a sanctum. He regretted ever leaving his cozy solitude and damned his family for ever trying to excavate him. He pulled in lungs of air with the satisfaction of a lion in his den. But what a stench. He coughed out the sour air and wrenched his face. Good lord. The trash had gone bad, of course. Another fact of life he loathed. Something he had pitched was surely fermenting in the ooze that puddled at the bottom of the black plastic shroud. It was a curdled, fishy mash, and the odor, though slight, was powerful. It wasn't as though the trash were there in the sitting room, indeed it was in the adjacent kitchen, but the small traces of stench that floated into him were intense and stupefying. At that moment he began to wonder if he should take it out. The pungent flavor was like that of soiled diapers and bloated fish. But he decided to carry on with his chapter and conclude it before he lugged the bag out of his sanctuary and cast it out into the everlasting night. A car pulled up to the ant's house. Two men exited the vehicle, and their laughter clattered off the houses and pavement as they mounted the porch. One rang the bell and they spoke in unmuffled tones while they waited. The door opened and an observer standing under the trees on the opposite block would have seen two men being wrapped up in arms pulling them inside. The observer would then hear the voices grow distant and hushed as the little group slipped rushed across the threshold and the wooden and screen doors were closed and bolted. The porch light was extinguished. Only the street lamp's green-yellow light intruded into the lawn and eaves, and only a thin splinter of orange light seeped between the living room curtains to suggest the warmth and calm in that place. In all other respects, it was a castle, a den for hibernation during the winter that swallowed all green and life outside its remote boundaries. Within the hour, the sliver of orange had gone black, and by one in the morning the house was doused in warm sleep. The moon and stars were tucked in beneath the colorless clouds, and unconsciousness seemed to pass over the town and the world and the cosmos. The visitor had fallen asleep sometime near midnight, but the building stench of the garbage had shaken him back to wakefulness. He was glad, too. His dreams had been wild and abstract, of evasion and discovery, of pursuit and capture, and the tangible sight of his apartment went far in relieving him of the anxiety but the casual step on the kitchen tile restored all of his misery and set an electric surge through his nerves and veins. It was a wet, floppy tread, like that of a person who steps naked out of a shower when they think that they are alone in a house. Four quick, unmuffled flaps assured him that it hadn't been an isolated incident. There again. But there was something else in it, something heavy and leathery like his visitor was dragging a drenched beach towel, more than a beach towel, behind it. There it was again. The steps were awkwardly placed, as if they weren't feet at all. But what? The lamp was still the only light in the apartment, and its anemic, milky glow was blocked from intruding into the kitchen, which was a solid rectangle of unbroken black. But it hardly would have mattered. The host was incapable of turning his head. He wanted to, if he could only rally his courage and lean his head even a few degrees to the left so that he could peek in the direction of those fumbling, infantile movements, he would. But he couldn't. He kept his eyes riveted to the beige wall, while his head sat frozen. 
some eight or ten feet away from the kitchen doorway, fixed and immobile, like a moth paralyzed by a spider's venom, and is left strong to her web while she waits for her appetite to build before draining him in her hunger. There was a violent tumble, as if a drunk person attempting to stand from a floor where they had been crawling. He felt his stomach blushing with terror at his vulnerability. It warmed and chilled in pulsations as blood gushed to his organs amid his brain's directive commands. Fight or fly, defend or defect. But his heart was cowardly, and he refused to look at it. It might look back at him, but what? What? Why did part of him seem to understand what was happening, while the other, the majority, was just as eager to believe it to be a raccoon who had broken through a window screen in pursuit of a rancid trash? And couldn't it be? But raccoons do not have mushy, squeaky flesh that rubs against linoleum like damp rubber, and garbage does not smell like that. No, not even rotten bacon, which he had smelled once, or spoiled milk, or putrid fish rotting on a riverbank, both of which he had encountered on multiple occasions. The mockingly sweet, fetid stench, like the mash of vomited fruit punch and meat, was distinct from the wholly bitter or sour stench of rotten food. Sweet, sugary, syrupy. But how valiantly he had to brace himself to prevent the gases from purging his stomach. It seeped in stronger now, and there was another fleshy flop, and another. Hands. They were hands. His visitor was crawling on their stomach. But there, a long, awkward squeak. Another. And now a series of scuffling slips and stumbles, but moving forward. Was it on its knees and crawling now? He suddenly realized it was directly behind him. Look! 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 He urged himself to face it, to resist it, but he couldn't, even as he shivered and bristled with goose flesh, even as his fingers grew numb and trembled, his neck was locked in place, and no willpower could inspire him to so much as move his eyes from the point on the wall where they were fixed. It was only now that he felt a cold grip on his wrist. The watch was strapped tightly to him, and it clattered excitedly away, like a dog who scrambles at the first sound of its master's car approaching down a side street. Then a plop, muffled and dry, a hand falling heavily across the kitchen threshold onto the Berber carpet. The sitting room was swamped with a gassy stench, and for the first time he heard the visitor's phlegmy chortle as it gained him. He pleaded with himself, with God, with it, but he could not face that which crawled so industriously toward him. Something that might be a knee scratched slowly across the carpet. Then the sound repeated itself and the choked noises it made, a muttering, squawking chatter composed of garbled words but seeming to exude a sense of self-congratulation, encouragement, and giddy anticipation were undeniably poised directly behind his head. Home! Home! Back home! Thug! Brute! Won't get rid of me! Nope! Nope! Staying! Back home! 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 He wanted to reach for the watch, to rip it from his arm, to turn against the crawling, mushy thing lurking behind him, 
and to hurl the clucking device at it before pushing it down and running for the door. But he didn't, and he couldn't. Two sounds, like those of a cat who digs its claws into upholstery before clambering up a piece of furniture, announced that it had grabbed onto the loveseat armrest. And, yes, there was the shadow. The beige wall suddenly went dark. But what thing was this? The shadow was not a perfect silhouette, but the outline was not that of a human person. Not a living human person. And then the shadow began to descend, and he felt the first drop of water hit his forehead as it hung over him. The host felt his visitor's long, mud-encrusted hair brush against his left cheek, and before he could retreat into the black avoidance of his closing eyes, he saw the hand, mottled blue and purple flesh, drawn tight into the bones that broke through it at the knuckles, where the skin was slushy, black, and unbleeding. The lake at Wabash State Park is commonly agreed upon by locals and visitors to be beautiful. Punctured by dark islets, populated with shaggy patches of underbrush and tightly formed poplars and elms, it sparkles in its broadest spaces and glowers underneath the bushy trees that form along its shallows. The islets are used by canoers for picnics, and some of the larger ones, still hardly large enough to be called islands, are provided with wooden picnic tables. The wood is gray and rotting, and the bolts are rusted orange but couples are occasionally still spotted hauling baskets out of canoes, paddle boats, or skiffs, and unpacking sandwiches and glass Coke bottles from their provisions. The lake has a history of attracting couples. Some are platonic friends, retirees, fathers and sons, who come for the feeble fishing. Some are young people who have just begun dating. Others have been married for some time, but it is common in any case to see a pair sauntering along the banks, crossing it in a skiff, or perching on one of its stalwart islets. Sometimes, on misty days, rangers have seen less appealing strollers, lone figures that hobble and totter. In the half-perverse, half-serious way that rangers seem to adopt when approaching local folklore, they have told me that the lake has had a checkered history with the lovers who frequent it during the months between June and October. They did not tell me of drownings or murders or bodies that floated to the surface after a thaw or jealous wives or bitter husbands of strained separations or threatened divorces, nor of early morning rendezvous at the lake, a spot with fond memories of an optimistic courtship, nor of men leaving the park with dark, nervous faces. They did not tell me of investigations into disappearances near the park, searches that only included the lake when stench began to bubble from the dark waters between the shore and one of the scraggy islets. They did not tell me of women desperate to maintain their abusive relationships, of presents given or of presence abandoned, near the site of a revolting crime. They said nothing of bitter spirits said to wander shorelines, or parts of the lake and shore which sensitive people tend to avoid, or areas where some become nauseous until they flee to higher ground and refuse to return, or anything at all about coaxing voices floating through the tarry water, like a call being made from behind the curtain of a steamy shower, or of hands being offered in gestures of frustrated desire, or of the heads or shoulders, ghastly to imagine, which might be presumed to follow. They said nothing about any of these things, and why should they? There are newspapers and microfilm and search engines for that. 
The rangers said nothing about the man who was found curled on his couch four days after his heart had exploded, or the watch which the police found and collected, a responding detective recognizing it as being a piece of evidence in a cold case which had gone missing from the archives, or the way that the throat was passionately wrung and the head viciously knocked post-mortem, or the agonizing stench that lingered throughout the house, a stench far worse than that to be expected from a four-day-old cadaver in a house chilled by air conditioning. Instead, the rangers said that the lake has a checkered past, that it is not wise to visit it at dusk or dawn without someone else with you, and that, yes, there are a lot of rumors about some of the events that have been connected with it. The ranger looked at me pleadingly after I had tried to extract a more full account, and with that I closed my investigation. I turned my car around and left the park, and he returned to his hut. Although it was not yet quite dusk, I saw him turn on the light. The Streets at Night by Moxie Labouche It wasn't safe on the streets lately. The night air had the edge of an early fall and a long winter to come. Crystal pulled her jacket tighter around her body and stepped closer to the other working girls under the yellow skirt of the street lamp. The streets at night weren't for people. People went into buildings where they would be warm and safe. People were cared about. People were missed if they weren't in the warm, safe place where they were expected to be. If you slept under the dingy slate sky rather than a ceiling, or if you walked all night on pavement instead of sleeping on a plush mattress and a memory foam pillow, you weren't a person. The streets were full of non-persons. The night provided many things for the non-persons. It removed the eyes of people either looking at them with disgust or pointedly looking anywhere else. It created impenetrable shadows and safe wells of darkness. The night created a camaraderie among the non-persons. Still, it wasn't safe on the streets lately. Crystal felt like she'd been on the street for two lifetimes. It wasn't supposed to be like this. She came from money, old money. Her forebears could easily be traced to medieval manners. The patriarchs of various households made prudent investments down through the centuries and they wanted for nothing. Crystal, on the other hand, wanted. She lacked, and she needed. Her existence had always been hand to mouth, only able to make do one day at a time, or one night at a time. The car slowed as it approached the women. Its passenger window slid down as it stopped in front of Crystal at the edge of the group. A car was good. It meant not having to use the mattress in the squat. A car was bad. It meant the John could take you wherever he wanted, and not bring you back. It had been a month since Deshauna's body had been found. No one had heard from Andrea in over a week. Her cell phone went straight to voicemail. It wasn't safe on the streets lately. But Crystal hadn't had a date yet, and the traffic was light. 
The John didn't want anything weird, and he was content to just drive them around the block behind the empty warehouse. Crystal pushed down the good sense of self-preservation and slid onto the passenger seat. He wanted his money's worth, and it was all groping, grabbing, grasping hands the instant the shifter was in park. The engine was still running. Passively, Crystal gave him access and waited. When the John was too distracted by his base needs to notice or care about anything else, Crystal buried her fangs in his neck and drank a deep draught. The John tried to struggle, but no man could be as strong as she. Her jaw was wrapped around his windpipe like a lion crushing the breath out of a Cape buffalo. She wanted nothing more than to glut herself on the sticky tang of iron. But bodies drained of blood tended to draw attention, police, media, and otherwise. If you were going to have a full meal, you had to be ready to destroy the body. Crystal couldn't be asked for all that, so she pulled herself off when she'd gotten a decent amount. Besides, a belly bloated with a gown and a half of blood would make it harder to beat out the other girls for the next John. Crystal drove the car away from her stroll, but not so far away that it would take long to walk back. The John had a folding knife in his pocket, the kind you might carry every day for a blue-collar job. That was lucky. Crystal wrapped his cool fingers around it and drew the blade across his throat. She went back and feigned two hesitation marks to obscure the twin holes she had made. She shut the car off and locked the doors. It wasn't safe on the streets lately. Now we try to walk away from these stories as better and more informed people, my friends. And I think the lessons in today's stories are pretty apparent. I don't think it's a controversial stance to take to say that it is not the best idea to turn to the streets for certain things. And the next time you're on a beach and a shiny object catches your eye, maybe just leave it there. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I would love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that into syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter via the same handle, at syypodcast. And of course, you can also just use those methods just to say hi. Shout out this week to Dan on Facebook for liking the page. And that's Dan from the Netflix and Swill podcast, where I was a guest host last week. Shout out also to the Epic Film Guys, which is another movie podcast I guest hosted last week. Nick from Epic Film Guys and I talked about some big upcoming movies, so make sure you check out last week's episodes of Netflix and Swill and Epic Film Guys. And if you like what you hear, just hit that subscribe button. So to sum up, Netflix and Swill, Epic Film Guys, The Cabinet, and Your Brain on Facts are the shows you need to check out after today's episode. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now next week is the third week in October, and we're going to continue the scary story theme where you'll hear, among other things, the story of a somewhat peculiar hotel guest. Until then, this has been episode 24 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next week.